welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. Hello everyone, on today's episode we have somatic social justice practitioner, trauma-informed, and resilience-oriented licensed psychotherapist Nat join me for a powerful conversation today. Together we talk about the effects of generational trauma and internalized oppression within our relationships and how it all relates to Nat's personal story and dreams for our society's future. Nat has such a beautiful energy of compassion and love for others that even you as a listener will probably feel just in the way that she is present in this space. And so there's a lot to learn from her and the strength that she has. So tune in. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm very excited about this because it seems like you have a lot of different facets to who you are <laughs> as a person. Because, yeah, I was introduced to you as you know, a dancer and now I'm learning about this side of you and then you're introverted. All yes. of that. This is okay. How yes. do you exist in all these identities? You know, I try to exist with a lot of love. Like I love that. My goal for 2020 to 2021 is choose love. So in whichever space that I enter and plug in, my goal is to bring love for myself, for the people that I am sharing the space with, and then we can just be more of ourselves together. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you, Nicole. I know that's so broad. It is. I want to hear more of what that actually looks like. Yeah. I think we, we talk so much about, you know, being intentional and vulnerable and courageous, but with all of my intersecting identities, it's so hard to be courageous and authentic sometimes because it's it's not always convenient for people to embrace all of who I am, being an immigrant, a transgender woman, and an Asian woman. Sometimes it's just so hard to just be all of who I am at once. So I give myself grace. I give people that I'm sharing the space with grace until we learn more about each other. That's very strong of you to hold space for other people who are failing to see you fully. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Given my boundary and energy level at the time, of course, but being a community organizer and a transformative justice practitioner for almost a decade now, I wholeheartedly believe that we need all hands on deck when it comes to liberation practice, when I support families to, you know, be anti-oppressive parent, I feel like, yeah, we're going to need everybody, white parents, parents of color, 
right? Because we're trying to raise the next generations to be exactly who they are. And we need us to do the same. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so then let's pull it back. So I guess I should start with who are you for the <laughs> listeners, right? Because I kind of know who you are, but like, how would you describe yourself to someone who's never heard of you before? Yeah. Um, I am a work in progress. I, I love am that. very imperfect, but I, I grow and I learn every day and every morning I wake up, I feel super grateful. And I bring all of that into many hats that I'm wearing. I found it come back to care um, this past March. So that integrates everything that I do clinically into one place. So it's somatic practice. It's storytelling and it's family systems work and it's decolonized child development work and infant mental health relationship work all wrapped in <laughs> one bundle of thing. I'm also an artist. I am a burlesque dancer. Yes. I'm a community organizer. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful to be able to do everything that I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. The combination of all of those sorts of things. Where? How do you find all the time for this? Oh my gosh. Nicole, I feel so lucky that everything, it's its integrated. Mm, okay. Yeah. I, I feel like a part of my life from early childhood to, to I think 10 years ago, it's been so fragmented. Because I have to be a trans woman, but I also have to pass as a woman, but I need to fit in a good immigrant box. So it's so fragmented by the systemic oppression. So I'm trying my hardest to integrate everything and every part of my identity into what I do so that I can live wholeheartedly and being real about it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm so happy then to provide you this space to talk about this and what this means to you on a personal level as well. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Tell, oh, yeah. Tell me more about what this means then to you. I mean, maybe first, like, what does the practice actually look like? You used a lot of words that listeners probably wouldn't even know. Somatic experiencing, oh. you know, what's that? Storytelling. What, what, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah. Thank you, Nicole, for asking. So come back to care basically means coming back to your body, coming back to the goodness that's already inside you. And that means come back to care. Because I believe that with parenting or social justice advocacy, we start by going inside of ourselves and coming out the other side of pain so that we can move through what we thought was impossible. Yes. Yeah. Right. And when we go in, out and through, we always come back to care and it's care for ourselves, our families and our community. So by doing all of that, I try to encourage my families to not think our way out of trauma or do yoga out of trauma or do self-care and put sheet mask on our face out of trauma, but actually use the body-based practice, right, as a rich source of information so that they, we can all kind of understand how we're reacting and responding to ourselves, to our kids, so that we can be who we are instead of being, you know, running on autopilot. 
So then what does that actually look like though? Because you're talking about using the body as a guide, which is still, you know, what does that mean? It means letting go of the checklist that there's no 10 step strategy that parents should have already known to become a good parent. In my work, I always encourage parents to develop three things, awareness, action, and agility. And awareness is about being aware of the social conditioning that's asking you to sacrifice parts of yourself to fit in a social box of Mm. this is what a good parenting should look like. Yeah. Can we talk about that? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. The box is so small, Nicole. Mm -hmm. It's so, so small. And I find that the brilliance of the parents that I work with is so much larger than that tiny box, right? So to be aware of that and be aware of the intergenerational family patterns. Yeah. Could you say more? Yeah, absolutely. Our ancestors had to do X, Y, and Z to survive, whether it's war, whether it's societal violence and oppression, right? And whatever they had to do to survive is also enacted in the family. You know, in our family, we talk about closed mouths don't get fed, and we teach kids to be assertive and speak up for themselves and be independent because we're trying to mold them and optimize them and shape them to be an, a productive member of a capitalistic society, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with that because we still need to pay bills and we need to train our kids to pay bills and survive under this systemic, messy oppression too. But we have to remember that that's not all of who we are. And I'm preaching to the choir because you know that, right? With modern (laughs) anarchy, it's like, yeah. yeah. So awareness is being aware of all of that. And then action is to use this body-based practice to ground ourselves. How do you start to become aware though? Like, Mm -hmm. what are you, what are you looking for to even see this level of oppression that's been internalized? Yeah. It starts by knowing that hustling, grinding, trading labor for money, disregarding care and connection, and trusting our willpower to be perfect, to compete, to exploit resources of the land, that's not our baseline. I think the first step is to see the oppression for what it is. It's not in our human nature. Say more because some people would, you know, come back with evolution and say survival of the fittest. That is actually exactly what our nature is. Exactly. Not that I believe that, right? Right, right. Well, if we talk about our neurobiology, we're hardwired to connect, to bond and to attach, right? Babies are so cute and they are born with this capacity to cue, to look really pretty and cute, making eye contact with the caregivers so that they can make that social connection from the very beginning to survive, right? And our ancestors survived when we're a collective, a village, supporting one another. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Have you studied relational theory? <laughs> yes. yes. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah. This is this is all what I'm thinking as you're saying this. Yes. 
Yes, because I I love child development. That's that's my origin story. Being a teacher, a preschool special ed teacher, and I love child development, the science of it, but the art of it is to understand the the nuances of child development. Because it's not about you know talking to your kids to promote language development, but it's understanding the context of that. That in the Western culture, of course. Talk to your kids, right? It makes so much sense. But in other cultures, maybe talking to kids is not the primary way to promote child development because it might not be valued as much. So, kind of understanding the context of development, understanding the context of our neurobiology is so key to being aware that this is not our baseline. So then, how does that? Actually, look like in practice, though. Then, so we recognize that, yeah, we're supposed to be in community. Great. How do you actually change that when our whole life has taught us that it's a competition? Yes, oh, Nicole. Yeah. And we talked before we started the interview about imposter syndrome. Yeah. Right. Like, does it even matter what we're doing? Right. When when the oppression is the water we swim in, the air we breathe, the Kool Aid that we drink. And we're trying to kind of go against the grain, so I feel that imposter syndrome too. And it's so silly asking parents to like let go of these social conditioning when the material reality is the bills keep coming. The school might not value liberation, for example. Right. So I think the key is community, to find the people that you can practice liberation with. And it feels so good when you find that community where you don't have to explain your liberation practice or justify it. What would parents be justifying? What are some examples of things that might some people might, yeah, have questions about that would need justification? If I can make this fill in a blank, Nicole, I always hear I want to do X Y Z, but I love my kid. For example, I I can't breastfeed. Like I need to bottle feed, but I still love my kid. And for the past ten years, I feel like whenever parents deviate from the these norms of how to be a good parent, defined by capitalism, patriarchy, individualism, white body supremacy, right? They have to justify that. But I love my kids. But I just want to do it my way, and they have to whisper about it and feel a lot of shame. A lot of shame because they can't meet the. Parenting success benchmark. Yeah, which is even what is that? And who right? created that? Exactly, and it's so fraught with so many oppression. Yeah, so it's not about you know not following the rules just for the sake of being rebellious, right? Because you're you're just resisting what's oppressing you. So there's a difference because you're trying to raise a generation that you want them to be exactly who they are. While being aware of the larger systemic oppression, and then have the agility to kind of step in and out or code switch, so that they could be who they are, find the community that they can belong to, and survive under the larger oppressive system. Right, and that community structure—it makes sense in any thing that you're fighting oppression against. Finding the community is what allows you. To be okay under yes. that level of oppression, and and know there's tons of research talking about the importance of community on our physical well being, mental <sighs> health. It's just it we know scientifically that it makes a huge difference to have that community. Yes, 
we know, right? And we know in our body that it makes sense. Yet we hear every day from all the institutions, education, media, finance, politics, laws, that you got to do this on your own. And if you just work a little bit harder, you'll get there, right? So it's hard. So like in the grander sense, do you think we are looking at like evolving parenting to parenting teams and parenting communities? Is that your dream or is... That would be my dream, Nicole. That would be my dream. Yeah. Tell me more of what you hope for in the future. Yeah. I, I hope for parents to not expect perfection, or even to be quote unquote healed before they become a good parent, right? My hope is for parenting to not be about preventing or protecting, but it's about participating in the present moment. And it looks a lot like you're attuning to your kids, but first you attune to yourself, your energy, your boundaries. Because a lot of motherhood and parenthood, it's all about, oh, just sacrificing our own needs to be, you know, giving our kids everything. If you don't do that, are you even a parent? Right? And I'm like, is that, is that right? Is, is that the only way to be? Yeah. Cause I definitely, I don't think I want kids because I think I've been told that if I do that, that's going to be my whole life. Yes. Yes. And that, I, I don't know when that shifted historically because it wasn't always like this. I believe, don't they like talk about it changing more recently and with since yes. 70s, 80s, there's been like a big switch? Yes. If we think about the economic factor shaping that, I think the baby boomers, you know, they had the resources and the middle class back then was very different, right? And then we had the economic crisis in 2008 in the U.S., Right. And now people are like, Oh crap. Like to be and stay in the middle class, it's not as easy as before anymore. Right. So parents are trying their best to prepare their kids to survive in this capitalistic society by, okay, now you got to work harder. Now you need extracurricular activity. Play has to be structured. I'm I'm just thinking about my childhood. Yeah, you always got to be doing things because you need to get to college, to get to this, to get to that, to get to that. And when do we even allow kids to play? Yes. Yes, exactly. And it's not to shame our parents. Of course, right. I, I just want to like be crystal clear about that because they they too had to do their best with what they knew at the time and the resources that they had. Just like what we're doing. Yeah, but I think in my work is encouraging parents to kind of look at their own parents as what Michael Kerr said, as your grandmother's daughter and get to know them that way. As a person and not your mother. Exactly. Exactly. Is this applicable for everybody that's in a family structure? Is this applicable for your new parents? Like, I mean, I have a mom, right? Is this how I should be looking at my mother in that way? Mm. Whenever you're ready, right? I'm ready. (laughs) I'm here for it. Yes. Because with attachment, right, we tend to develop a story of what our parents were what they did, how they loved us. And then we develop our narrative of who we are, 
what we deserved, how we trust people, and all of that. But then at some point, as adults, we can also upgrade that narrative and look at our parents as a person instead of our mom, our dad, right? And we can kind of both and that. Like if I were to look at my own parents as people, I would look at, okay, that's the hardship that they went through under X, Y, and Z historical, cultural, political forces and factors, right? To bring that compassion to the family systems, not to forgive them, not to condone whatever they did, but to just broaden the understanding a little bit. And I trust that whatever you do to upgrade the story about yourself and your family, then you you have the discernment, right? Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of as a queer woman that came out to my mother, yeah. she said that she was extremely disappointed in me, mm-hmm. that she was worried I was going on a deep, dark path. She couldn't sleep for days. Like, that's the response I got, right? But then there's compassion to understand that within her ideological worldview as a Mormon, that this is what she's going to see and how she's going to understand the world. And that's what her community reflects. And she's been through all of this to get to that point. Yes. It's getting better. We're still talking. But like, even like that level of response, you're just like, you hold both. It's extremely hurtful and you have to be compassionate. And so... I had a long conversation with her about how I won't allow her to talk poorly about my sexual identity and I won't talk poorly about her faith. Yes. But even in that, she was like, no, I'm I'm your mother. I'm going to tell you what's right and wrong. Like I can't just not tell you when you're going down a dark path. And I was like, no, mom, these are boundaries. She's like, you can't just cut me off. And I'm like, yes, I can. These are boundaries. (laughs) um, And it's like doing this work is not easy. It's not at all, Nicole. And I'm, I'm honoring your discernment and agility, right? To hold both and. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Like, this is your truth. Yeah. And this is also my boundary. My truth. Yeah. And boundaries. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's so hard. <sighs> I think, I wonder, have you ever looked into like the concept of what it's like when the child is the leader in this game? Of teaching the parent because that's kind of how I feel frequently because my parents have never been to therapy. I'm becoming a psychologist. So I'm over here like boundaries, internal reflection, and like I'm teaching that. Yes, we are. We are, right? And, And with humility and compassion too because our ancestors, parents included, may not have had the privilege to go to therapy, to reflect about this, or even have the language, right? Yes, yes. So how do we kind of do all of that, right? With honesty and compassion. And it takes such a mental shift for that generation to let go of their own parenting construct and listen and follow and attune to us. Yeah, especially when the religion is like fighting that as well. Yes, yes. I know this isn't my therapy hour, but you know what I mean? I'm just like, what do I do? What do you do? You know what I mean? Like, I'm only a human in this world trying to navigate it to my best of my abilities of like holding space for my own truth, holding space for their truth. But it's like, it's very difficult when those are in direct, 
you know, attack with one another and to keep that compassion and to hope that maybe all this work and effort we put into this will actually lead to change when that's not necessarily promised. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, And we get to redefine and reclaim what that change looks like, right? Because we're in the family systems, we're only responsible for ourselves. We love our family, but the only person we can change is ourselves. So even though we lead by example, even though we teach, even though we model with compassion, there's only so much our parents or our ancestors can change. Yeah. Yeah. That's a harsh reality. It is. It is. And it's such a beautiful parallel process to the social justice piece too. Yeah. Okay. Tell me. Yeah. Because we talk about parenting is political. What we do in the home reflects how we advocate for equity outside of the home. And the same thing that you talked about, Nicole, that we can't really expect our parents to change and buy into all of who we are. Right. And it's the same thing when we advocate for social justice and equity, that it's not going to happen just like that. I just love how parenting and social justice is like such a beautiful parallel. Yeah. Say more because you said that parenting is political and what Mm -hmm. you do in the home reflects that. I would love to hear more about what that actually means. Yeah. Well, when we're trying to attune to our kids, we have to really use empathy and mentalization, right? To understand what our kids communicating, what they're saying and what they're needing. And to do that, we decenter ourselves just a little bit, right? Enough to really see our kids and their, their needs instead of projecting what we think they need. And the concept of decentering in social justice, it's the same thing. We decenter our privilege and our power so that people who have less, right, can have that space. So that's certainly one aspect. So to attune to our kids, we have to decenter. And that's one aspect where social justice and parenting just goes so hand in hand with each other. Certainly. Right. And ultimately, this is also just how we should exist in any relationship, I would like to think, right? Yes. This same dynamic of decentering ourselves to be present for the people that we're connecting with. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in parenting, too, I think that when parents are grinding so hard to survive, pay bills, have a never-ending to-do list, they only have the window of tolerance or the bandwidth tiny enough to to create this what what's called the first order change where you just switch out a strategy to put a band-aid on the current root problem like if my baby is not calm and they cannot be soothed. So I just maybe switch from rocking to maybe shushing or swaddling. So you just keep switching the strategy versus the third order change is where you try to understand the problem, right? Like, why am I so stressed about my baby not sleeping? Why am I so like striving for perfection that to be a good mom, I need to shush my baby. The first second they whimper, 
in the middle of Target on a Friday evening and step away from the strategy for a second and understand that, oh, crap, it's patriarchy, isn't it? Mm. That's asking me to parent for a male gaze. That, Tell me more. Yeah, that for me to be a good mom, I need to like be a baby whisperer all the time. Could you say more about how that is the patriarchy and the male gaze specifically? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think patriarchy has this construct of gender, of motherhood. And we hear it all the time that, oh, you're having a baby. That is so awesome. You're going to be such a good parent. It's natural. You should be grateful, blah, blah, blah. But it's so hard. And it prevents a real conversation that, you know what? I love my baby to death, but I just don't like this little shit from time to time. Yeah. That's our anarchy right there. Yes. Yes. And there's no space for them to talk about that because even on Facebook, they have to post the most picture perfect Christy Teigen inspired baby activity when in fact it's so hard. So patriarchy and male gaze is asking parents to, you know, you got to do it alone. You have to be perfect at that. You have to do it while looking your best and do it alone and be grateful. Certainly. Is the male gaze piece of that, like the perfectionism that's tied to that? I, I guess I relatively kind of know what to think of when I think of that concept of male gaze, but I'm not sure everyone listening would understand yeah. even that phenomenon of like, what does that mean? Mm. For people who haven't studied these kind of topics at all, you know, maybe this is just like first time they hear that word. Yes. Oh, thank you for asking, Nicole. So thinking about what a gender construct is asking you to be, right? If you could fill in the blank, to be a parent, I should. To be a good parent, I should. Or to even be a professional, I should. And if we make a list and we can see that, oh oh, this is like colonialism, this is patriarchy, this is racism, asking me to fit into these things. So with patriarchy, of course, right, individualism. Yep. Heteronormative. Yep. Characteristics. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on. Yeah. I think it's good that we explain that because there are a lot of people who like maybe have never even heard that term and I only heard it being an English major, right? So like that's an important thing to yes, talk about. Yes, yes. Um, But I think that if you let go of the concept though of these guiding structures, ultimately it requires you to ask what do you value and that inherently does not have a blueprint, which is terrifying. So you're asking people to let go of what their inner gut says, this is what I'm supposed to do and actually stop, sit back and ask yourself, what do you want? And at first, probably the answer is going to be, I don't know, because I've never asked myself before. Oh, Nicole, it's like you're reading my (laughs) mind. Yeah. Because what we're talking about, it sounds so awesome, right? Like I'm just going to be liberated and free and I'm going to raise my kids how I want in ways that align with my values. It's so great. But the fact of the matter is it's so scary because what does it mean for me to be me then? Because the story that I keep telling myself and I believe about who I am in this world is crap. So not only I have to let go of that narrative, I have to build a new one. And as you said, there's no blueprint. So I often talk about, you know, 
there's no parenting manual, but there's a parenting playbook, and it was written by our ancestors, our social oppression that's historical and pervasive and present right now. So there is like a silent code of conduct of how we should parent, how we should be a mother, a father, a parent, a caregiver, and how we should raise our kids. So in this playbook, there's so many co-authors. Yeah, the different levels of oppression. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this uncertainty is even more important for us to become the author and editor of our family ongoing story, so that we can build a legacy of you know compassion and liberation for our kids. Mm-hmm. But then, where do you start? I guess you, right? That's yes. that's when people come to you because they say, "I don't want to repeat the patterns I've done before, yes. but I don't know how to not do that." Right. Yes, yes, yes. And I started my work because not everyone can afford therapy and not everyone can have privilege. And I'm not saying that my work replaces therapy, but I want to create a space for education for parents to kind of take ownership and authority back a little bit. How did you become passionate about this personally? Hmm. I think it's, it has to do with my transgender identity. Because all my life, for me to survive, Nicole, I have to pass, which means I have to appear feminine. I have to talk like a woman, dress like a woman, appear very femme. So I like contoured, perform, and sacrifice my authenticity to fit in that box. And when I see parents do the same thing and sacrifice their sacred wholeness just to fit with this parenting box, it breaks my heart because I get to see every day how much they love their kids and what an important work they're doing to love their kids and attune to their kids and raising their kids to be who they are. But but then they're feeling this structural imposter syndrome. They feel like they're not good enough. They feel like, why are they even having this kid to begin with right so i know the struggle and it breaks my heart to see that in in parents right who are just trying to do their best and you know exist in this world but if you'd be willing i'd love to hear more about that personal experience of what it felt like to be in a that box versus coming to your authentic self i think there's a lot of wisdom Mm. that people could benefit and connect with you in hearing thank you nicole to be in that box i had to you know talk a certain way dress a certain way and not be too much or too little and just be invisible so that i can fly under the radar right just to be small just to survive but all the while, I know that I'm so much more. I know that my worth is more and I can offer and contribute more. But if I do that, I would risk being very visible, being very authentic and seen. And that's not safe for me. So in my teenage years, I spent so much time being so angry about the injustice. And at some point, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. Were your parents supportive of you at that time? They were in ways that they knew how. So they they sent me to a military camp and all of that. Yeah. And (laughs) yeah, because they were. Oh, no. Yeah. 
Yes. Wow. In in hope that I might, you know, change wow. and become more masculine, and this face would go away. Yeah, because we didn't I'm have. So sorry. Oh, thank you, thank you. We didn't even have the language at the time to talk about what transgender meant. So, so they try to just give me the support, but by you know exerting that power over paradigm and just like you should do this, this, and this for your best. So I did all of that. Um, yeah, it wasn't fun. Yeah, and yet you still hold positive regard and compassion for that time and what your parents put you through. Yes. Yes. It was, it was a work in progress right? for me to talk to my parents like years and years later about hey, what you did back then, you know, it affected me in this way where I feel that my needs and my truth and my values don't matter because I need to duck and hide and contort and perform to fit whatever I needed to be. Yeah. Did they receive that well? No. <laughs> Not at all. Oh. Not at all. Because oh, no. I, I had to witness my parents' defense mechanism. Yes. Right? They got yes. really, like, very revved up. They were screaming at me through through video. We were FaceTiming. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Right? And they were like hanging, hanging up the phone on me. So it was a work in progress, meaning it spanned across a year. For me to just like be honest and holding myself accountable and holding them accountable, but not in a way that, let me tell you, but I had to preface the conversation with, I love you and I love me. <laughs> And there's something we need to talk about. And in Asian culture, that's not, that's not what we do. Right. Yeah. You're a very strong person. Oh, thank you. I, I'm asking a lot of families to do this work. So it's only fair if I do it first, right? <laughs> but, and you're doing it well with compassion and the mm. ability to hold both. And even to start the conversation with someone who does not see you in your mm. full authentic self mm -hmm. to yeah. start that conversation with I love you mm. and start from that place is an immense strength. Yeah. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah. And I'm, I'm honoring it that, you know, I think 30% of it was my, you know, survival strategy that I've developed over the years to appease, to, you know, people please so that I can disarm my parents' discomfort. Yes, this is kind of the whole thing with me in the podcast too. Yeah, yeah yes. it's it's been a fun way to have at least enough meaning that I'm like, hey, mom, you know, like I have people who <laughs> who resonate with me, like all the queers out here, they get it. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Or, yeah, even post, I don't know if you saw the one I did on abortion. <gasps> I have not. I will check yeah, it out. So yeah, so I I had an abortion mm. and I did not tell my mother uh -huh. because I wanted to appease to her because I knew what her perspectives would be. So I went through that, yeah. you know, at 21 on my own and didn't tell her. And the first time she found out was on the podcast. Wow. Yeah. So oh. I recorded the episode before she knew and then I released it and sent it to her. And that's, yeah. And obviously wow. that reception didn't go well. But 
it's the same love I'm like resonating with everything you're saying of this you know like you get into the space where you just want to appease yes but in doing so you're not letting your authentic self out and just being yourself and in that and is causing suffering for ourselves in doing so yes because we're holding their shame that they hold for us and I you know what I mean? Because yes. when I think about it, I don't have any shame about my queer self. So mm-hmm. why am I not going to speak it to you when you're the one who has a problem with it? Exactly. Exactly. And when we play small and keep ourselves small enough and contort ourselves, at some point it's going to break. It's going to snap. And that that's internalized oppression, right? That you turn that societal hatred inward. So becoming authentic, it's not about a hashtag where be who you are, namaste or whatever, but it's about your integrity. It's about your vitality for you to live fully so that you can love and receive love fully. Yes. That's what I try to tell people, you know, going to therapy, it's so good for yourself. It's the most selfish and best thing you could do to be able to have connection in this world and intimacy and vulnerability, which are all the things that make life worth living. Yes. Yes. And if I were to broaden that concept of therapy, Nicole. Yeah, to this. Exactly. It's it's the space for you to be witnessed by the people that you trust. Right? So even though it's not in a therapist's office and you're lying on the couch, but you're allowing that softening so that you can be witnessed by the people that you love in your community. And that's what therapy is. Yes. To some degree, I mean, obviously it's a trained professional who knows yeah. how to guide. Yes. But the biggest thing is that you're being seen by yes. someone who is focusing on you and reflecting back that, yes, I see you and the struggle that you're going through and it's normal and I'm here with you. And the community can do that as yes, well. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be either or, right? Like depending on your privilege and resources, do all of that. Certainly. And I think that if parents, I know we said this earlier, start with that level of compassion for themselves and live in the dualities of the and, you know, yes, and all these different things, the gray space, then when they have their own child that they're raising, they're able to give them that same space and freedom to be all the different facets that they are. Exactly. Do you think the world's going to be a better place? I like to believe, honestly. I was talking about this recently. Like this level of conversation and dialogue about parenting, these are things that I never received, Mm. right? So many other people never received this level of parenting, but this is becoming a dialogue now in this space. Mm. And I'm just like, God, we're going to get better, right? Like one day these children that we're all raising with this level of care will be presidents and it's going to be better. Yes. I have to believe that, Nicole. Yeah. For sure. And I believe it with my whole heart as an act of resistance. Yes. Because love. Exactly. Because capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, white body supremacy takes that away from us. The ability to reimagine what the future is. And they kind of ask us, like, this is the only way. When it's not, it really is not. I started my social justice journey with a community of trans women who are sex workers in Thailand. And I realized now that what we did to survive supporting one another was mutual aid, was transformative justice, was harm reduction before I even learned these fancy schmancy terms. 
We have done those things all along, right? So if we can keep committing to decentering whiteness and bringing in these what quote unquote marginalized practices that are outside the systems that people have been doing all along to survive, yes. Yeah, it's going to be a better world. <laughs> like, it's going to be, because this is not great. <laughs> this is not great. Yeah. No, I know. And even the people who are thriving in this thriving, right, mm-hmm. in sense of a capitalistic society, I would still say are not truly thriving fully because yes. this affects everybody. Yes. Yes, it does. It really, really does. And there's no perfect way to navigate that is so messy. It's so messy. And and now we talk about it's going to be uncomfortable, sit with your discomfort, be vulnerable. And I feel like people don't really understand what that means. Tell them. <laughs> yeah, what do you, what do you know? <laughs> I feel like it's about knowing when you're about to go to your coping behaviors right? Before you pull out your phone and scroll, doom scrolling on Instagram, or reach out for that bottle of whiskey or that bag of chips, whatever you do to cope, I honor that, right? But sitting with discomfort means having that pause and space before you reach out to your coping behavior to see where that urge is coming up in your body. How's your body doing? What is, what, what is it communicating? It's interesting you say that because I feel like a lot of vulnerability, people talk about, oh, you need to be vulnerable with others. This is something you do with others. But really what you're talking about is being vulnerable with yourself to actually yes. ask the question of why am I engaging in this behavior and then actually look at the answer, which might be not what you want to see. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the tension, right? In that space of discomfort, and when you sit in it long enough, in that tension, you catch the answer that's arising from your body. Mm, How so? Tell me more. Yeah. So I give an example of a client that I worked with, and she talked about, you know, I just feel blah, right? So we study it together. What does that even look like? Is it sharp? Is it a dull blah? Because when I, when I see you say blah, I notice your spine collapse, you know, your face looking down, your breath felt so heavy, right? So we kind of study where that is in the body. Do you feel any temperature, any direction it's traveling in your body? Because it's different from when you say blah, right? The direction, the speed, the temperature, it's all different. So with that discernment, when you feel blah, and you just want to check out. You can know those tendencies in your body and make a choice intentionally how you want to respond instead of react and going on autopilot. What you're saying is hard though, because so hard. how often, first off, does society encourage us to be present with our bodies? I would say little to none. Yep. Mm-hmm. We have been taught that they are a, you know, medical thing that you can break apart into pieces and study like that. And yes. that's all it is. No other, yes. no other uh, answers in there other than maybe if you have a disease. Exactly. Exactly. And historically speaking, right, our bodies for QT BIPOC individuals mm-hmm. yeah. 
the bodies were for function, were for labor. And it's not for feeling. It's not for intuition. Because if you can't use your body to trade in for labor, you're disposable. So it's kind of dangerous to feel your feelings in the body. So then what do you do? It's an act of resistance to, you know, not override your coping mechanism, but just to feel it. Because I think the resistance really starts in the body. When you know that reaching out for your phone and scrolling on Instagram is not your only choice, that in that moment of discomfort and pause, you can pivot and choose a different coping strategy that's more adaptive. Isn't that choice liberation? Yes, the biggest liberation, right? You have years of generational trauma in your family and patterns of, you know, my parent yelled. And so when I get in a fight, I feel the desire to yell. So then, but you make that exact choice to say, no, I am not going to engage in that behavior. And that is the biggest liberation. Although it doesn't feel like it at the time, it is, (laughs) you know? It is. Yes. Yes. And for my black and brown parents, we talked about, you know, this this urge to yell and disconnect from the kids. And we talk about Dr. Joy's work, the post-traumatic slave syndrome. And we talked about how, you know, our ancestors had to do that. Yeah, can you say more? Yeah, because reconnecting with our kids or taking pride of our kids for their gifts and accomplishments, right? That that signals a different thing to the plantation owners. Because The kids could be taken away and sold for profit. So what do you do? You disconnect. And then with epigenetics and DNA, it gets passed down from one generation to the next, right? It keeps getting re-gifted. So with this discernment, we understand, is this tendency to disconnect from my child, my wound, or something that's older, or something that's historical? I mean, talking about self-care, parents, us included, don't even have time to just pee without looking at our phone and checking our emails and asking us to drop into the body and develop discernment, sit in discomfort. Like, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. But I feel like if we don't do the work, then when is that change going to happen? It won't. Right. (laughs) People will just continue the same patterns of hurt, which you can empathize with because there's safety there. There is understanding of this is what I do. This is who I am. This is my narrative. This is what I know. And there is a safety and comfort there, but ultimately we're damaging ourselves and Mm -hmm. future generations by staying in that space. Yes. It's familiar, but sometimes the plan is bigger than the pot now. But what you're talking about of pausing, even that's a optimistic place to start, right? Because a lot of people mm-hmm. won't even have that level of pause because you're just going exactly. through your day, pick up the phone chips, blah, blah, blah. Like how do you even get to the point of pausing to see it? Yeah, yes. For people who don't have the privilege to hide their differences, mm. right? Black and brown people, yeah. black trans women walking down the street, your physical identities is like calling for violence. You're like a moving target. So of course you need to walk around outside protecting yourself. I think the key is when you're in a safe space, perhaps when you go into your car, you lock the door, that's your safe space. Or when you come back home from work in your home, that's a safe-ish space. You can remember to pause and just take off that armor 
so that you can just be, right? Because it's so hard to connect to our kids whom we love in the safe safety of our home when we have that thick armor on. Because then parenting becomes, or it looks pretty much like a trauma response. Mm, yeah, just respond, respond, respond. Yeah. Yes. So pausing and becoming who you are when you are in the oppressed group is to have the agility of when to put the armor on and when to take it off. It's not about, you know, I'm going to drop to my downward facing dog and just breathe and meditate for an hour. We don't have time. Or when you take a shower, just delight in that and the safety and the self-care in the body in the connection with the water and your ancestors. I feel like this requires a bit of alone time is what I'm hearing though. I think this would be really hard to do yes. if you don't have the opportunity to even just get a moment because frequently when you're existing in a space around a bunch of people, it's demands, mm -hmm. stimulus, different energies constantly to just yes. like sit with yourself and try and reground. Yes, exactly. And when you have kids, right, right? How? perhaps one in your, in your lap, in your bottle feeding, and the other one is yanking on your shirt to like come play. So <laughs> I, I love one mom talked to me about, I just need to lock myself in the bathroom for like five minutes per day. And I'm like, if that's what you need to do and your kids are safe, go for it. Right. But it doesn't have to be that you do this in your own time and then you come back and be a perfect parent with your kids. I think about the concept of co-regulation and how you can be honest about how you're feeling with your little ones. Like, I feel so angry right now that people hurt other people just because of their skin color is different and I just need to cry a little bit and then I want to go take a walk. Because that makes me feel better. Do you want to do that with me? It's profound because that is not what parenting is projected to be in sense of like, you're the parent. You're supposed to have it all together. You're not supposed to have any problems at all. And don't let the kids see any of that. Yes. And who said that? Who set that rule? Yeah, the patriarchy who said yes. that you need to have all your stuff together and poised together for you to have any value and to exist in this space. Right. And then colonialism is like, well, work harder and focus on your free will and your intellect. Didn't you just read a child development book last night? Use it. Why are you struggling? Right. And then capitalism is like, well, you're just shit. So read more books or go pay for another parenting program. When really all the answers are actually here in ourself. Absolutely. Absolutely, Nicole. <sighs> I know it's heavy stuff, but I think like, I think it's Viktor Frankl, right? Who has that quote that's super, I, yes. I'm going to butcher it, right? But it's like, yes. in between the stimulus and the response is the space to, I don't know what the quote was, but you know, to make your own choice to like have yes. the freedom and the autonomy because I think people forget that when life throws you a stimulus, there is that small moment at which you can do what's comfortable or ask yourself, is there a different direction? And nothing is stopping you from taking the exact 180 in a completely different way. I feel like we get locked in these narratives of that describe who we are, right? It gives us a sense of gravity on this wild world that we have. This is who mm -hmm. I am. This is what I do. And at that exact moment, 
you can leave all that behind completely. Yes. Yes. Scary as hell. But we have to remember that we have that choice, even and especially amid all the systemic oppression, right? We do what we can to survive, but also that choice of changing the reaction to a conscious response, it's possible and it's a lifelong practice. Exactly. And then when you do this in front of kids, what you're doing is you're providing an example, So, right, they see that, oh, mom's upset. When mom gets upset, she wants to go outside and go on a walk. Okay, so when I get upset, maybe I can say, can we go outside on a walk? And just that level of connection to self is already huge compared to, oh, let's just put, you know, the kid in a timeout and not have this level of communication and just leave them to figure out how to regulate themselves, even though they've never been given that teaching. So we're setting them up for failure. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And this is where the wounds of the intergenerational family trauma takes place, right? Because a lot of parents would say, well, my parents never done that with me and I turned out fine. So why would I do it with my kids? Right? So it's like a gift that keeps on getting re-gifted, but you have a choice of, you know, unwrapping that gift and see it for what it is and decide, do you want to take some part out or do you want to re-gift it? Like, what do you want to do? Yeah, I think a lot of people that I've spoken with in reflection on childhood experiences will talk about spanking. Mm. And frequently, that's the same level argument sometimes I'd hear people say, like, oh, I turned out okay. Yeah. So, like, yeah, Yeah. I mean, let's just keep reenacting this level of corporal punishment to engage in behavior change because Mm. I'm okay. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So in my work, regardless of what behavioral management strategies you want to do, We think about, is it aligning with your value so that you can choose that consciously instead of, oh, but this is how I always am, or this is what it's been done in my family. So I'm just going to do it. It's consciousness. And I ultimately, I hope that's the whole point of this show, right? Is like all these things, I hope people see that there is a space where you can decide if this is for you or not. And by presenting so many different perspectives, maybe you could kind of see just that other people are choosing to not respond in the ways that they once thought were, you know, expected of them. Yes, absolutely. And when we do that frequently enough, we build a new habit, we build a new neural pathway, we build a new pattern. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a flexibility to engage in life in the same way, you know, people will frequently ask like, oh, what do you want? It's like, I'm not actually sure. And that's yes. okay. Right yes. now, this is what I want and what I feel the direction I'm going into, but also leaving an abundance of space for the fact that life is unpredictable in so many different ways. Yes. And we're going to be present with ourselves constantly asking, is this action that I'm about to do in line with my value system? And once you start to, yeah, once you start to live that life, it becomes a muscle that allows you to just embrace your authenticity because then that's how you engage in the world constantly. Exactly. So that makes strategies, whatever parenting or productivity or whatever you choose, not as relevant, right? Because you come back home to your body, you come back to care, you come back to your values, and then you develop discernment that way. Exactly. And then the big piece of that is once you understand your values, comparison is death at that point because you have to understand that when you look at other parents or other people in this world, they're going to have their own set of values. Yes. 
why are we comparing ourselves when everyone is uniquely different with their own algamation of historical context of who they are, their experience, what they see and what beauty is? Exactly. Right? And and when we do this in a community, we're changing the culture. Yeah. To provide space for everybody's authentic self. Yes. And yeah, part of that work, I think, really starts with accepting yourself and all your different facets. Because once you get that level of compassion and space to say, you know, I have freedom in these different ways to show up, even though society tells me I can't, Mm -hmm. you allow other people that space. Because who am I to define other people's value systems? Absolutely. And when you do all of that, Nicole, I believe that, yes, it's loving yourself, but also understanding yourself. And I think those two are slightly different. I was loved by my family, but because of my trans identity, I was not understood. That's why I, I'm just loving this work so much because I get to support parents to love and understand themselves so they can love and understand their kiddos. Yep, that's crazy. Just side point. I was applying for a scholarship and I literally wrote this about how specific like my experience to this like I knew the love of my parents, but I never felt understood and how that affects you. And it's a deeply isolating path. But then my whole essay was that that's why I want to do the work with the LGBTQ plus community because I know what it's like to not feel understood. So if I can be a part of seeing someone else and saying, I see you fully for every piece that you are and I understand. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's powerful. And it's exactly what you didn't get. And so to give that back makes so much meaning of your experience in this world to transform it to good. Exactly. That's beautiful, Nicole. And for for you, for you doing this, that's exactly what you're doing, right? You had this experience. The world did not give you what you deserve as an inherently valuable human being in this space. You Mm -hmm. deserve to have been understood and loved and to have all the space to exist in all the different facets that you are and you took that and instead of taking it negatively you worked with it you learned your about yourself and now you're powering it into helping other people do that work which is beautiful thank you nicole thank you and parents do the same right they do the same thing like for me not feeling understood so i seek to validate my existence by you know having two master's degree, getting more postgraduate certificate, like as if each certificate would certify my existence. And when parents are not grounded in their values, they would just keep going on and on about parenting blog and they buy another book, they listen to another podcast, and then they forget how to reconnect with their own wisdom. It's big, but this is huge. I think and once people learn to connect with that, it will affect all the ways that they show up in the world, how they show up with their their children and the work that they do and just like literally every level of existence as a human. Yes. Yes. That's my hope. I feel like I want to send beautiful recommendations of like, do you have any advice on how to start doing this work? Maybe, you know, people can obviously come to you. Yes. And if that's not available to them with differing levels of access to various yeah. resources, is there anything that you would suggest people could start doing to do this daily work? Yes, absolutely. Um, I made a free training Amazing. that people can go to my website and I can send you the link as well. It's called Project Care and Connect. It's my kind of 101 of 
intergenerational family resilience and also about decolonized parenting and body-based grounding practices. So it's like a combination of audio training and a beautiful workbook that I made. And then they get like a fun prompts or questions that they can interview the family members chosen or born into to kind of collect the family audio time capsule for them to kind of cherish and understand their own resilience better. So it's all available for free. Perfect. I'll have all of that linked when I post the episode below so that people Thank can just you. find it. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you, yes. how does it feel to be existing in the space that you're in right now, being a leader in a movement for love? It feels, it feels like my ancestors are rejoicing. Mm, I love that. That I get to this point in my life loving myself, believing in myself and trusting myself enough to do this work and stepping into the light of my own truth and holding space for other families and parents who are ready to do this liberation work to join me. I'm just immensely grateful, Nicole. It's wild. It's so wild. In preparation for this conversation with you, I was kind of reading through what I created. I'm just like, this is fucking amazing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, and, and I know that I'm not doing this by myself. My ancestors are doing it. And I have people in the community like yourself you. doing this work too. Yeah. And I love that. And I want to just revel in that for one moment that, yes, this is <laughs> badass. Yes. You're changing the world with love. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's so important that leaders in this space take time to reflect and give themselves that level of compassion and mirroring to yourself, seeing yourself for the amazing work that you're doing in the community. Thank you. And for providing this space too, Nicole. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, we're just like, yes, love that, love that. Yes, yes, yes. And equally actually holding that because I feel like sometimes frequently when people compliment each other back like that, sometimes we do that in a way to like offload the compliment that we just got. Like, oh, that's a lot. So let me compliment them back because I don't want to actually internalize what they just said to me. Oh, exactly. And what you did was, I think, relatively new practice for me for three years. Just saying, thank you for saying that. I'm taking it all in. Yeah. Yeah, before I kind of deflect and like, oh, you're great too. Yes, right. exactly. And that's even a level of pausing too that you learn with practice. And once you start to do that, it becomes more apparent. Yes. Our brain is so plastic. Exactly. Neuroplasticity, there's so much freedom to change. And yes. we get such stuck in these concepts of this is who I am when really this world is an abundant opportunity to be whoever you are meant to be in this space. Yes. Exactly. We learn this social conditioning and family programming. We can unlearn it. It's hard, but we can do it together in a community. Well, then that leads to my question that I ask everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole podcast is about normalizing various things. But hmm. I always ask, what is one thing that you wish other people understood was more normal? Mm. 
I'm gonna say performative anything is normal. Mm, okay, tell me more. Yeah, and and I said that, and then I felt this heat in the back of my neck, like, oh, bitch, you didn't say Ooh, that. Why? <gasps> yeah. Yeah. So let me clarify. Sometimes when you're unskillful, whether it's about social justice or advocacy, maybe performative allyship is where you start. But then you keep committing to it, aligning it and realigning it with your value until it becomes a practice. So it's a good start, but don't stay there. Like just keep being in community, being in relationship and commit to it. And I think it's important though, because that first piece is that it is a performance when you start. Exactly. Which makes sense because you're embodying a whole new set of ideals that you've never had before, which is going to take a level of change and acknowledging that you don't know the answers so then frequently that's where the performance comes in yes and because we're so hardwired to be in a social context in a community in a group right shame comes up when we feel like oh i don't i don't know how to do this and i might get canceled i might get you know ancestors back in the day get ostracized from our community so shame is a part of it conflict is a part of it so it's it's normal. It's normal and it's the first step. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, embrace it. Yes. I think this is common in so many different areas of life where people are like, how do I become this? And I'm like, you just do. You do it. You just, yeah, right? Like so many people ask like, how did you get to that space? It's like, well, you just take a step in that direction yes. and you fake it. There's a little bit of bravado at first and then it oh, becomes yes. who you are. Mm, absolutely. Like conflict, performance, all of that. It's part of the package. But don't stay there and bring some knee pads because you're going to yeah. fall. You're bring gonna knee make pads. Mistakes. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Hey, that's your community that are going to help you during that fall and still say, no, I see you doing all the work that you're doing to become your authentic self. And I see the hard labor that you're going through. And I'm with you for all the times that you fall down. Yes. Yes, exactly. So to be in a movement, I think for people who are like five steps ahead to sometimes like walk a little slower and look back to because we always look at the liberation, that's the end goal. But also maybe look back a little bit and see, see people are like newer to the movement to catch up. People are performing to make mistakes and then catch up. Exactly. Because if you attack them with shame, they'll run away from that space yes and in a way you're perpetuating that power hierarchy right yes exactly but then it calls on you to be the bigger person to look at them and say wow they're in a different point of growth and i'm gonna withhold the level of righteous response that you have to come to them and be like you're wrong yes yes and that self-righteousness it's so dangerous right nicole but it's also normal exactly because you know your truth yes we talked about a lot of different things here, but oh I think my all of yes. this is so applicable to just understanding how to better show up in the world and to have more joy and compassion by having deep intimacy of vulnerability with yourself, mm-hmm. with others, with the children that you raise to create a whole new future that we're imagining the effects of transformational justice through them and the legacy that they're going to make and how we can lead and make that lasting change through parenting. Yes. Humanity is a spectrum, just like gender, right? So we can be ourselves and make space for other people to be more of themselves. 
Like, isn't that more fun? Like, I want to live there. Yes, it is. Because it inherently means everybody has their own inherent worth. Because no one is you. So when you understand that and you look at another person, we always want to connect with people and feel like we understand and see the world the same way, which is inherently impossible. But Mm -hmm. therein lies the beauty of both of your perspectives is their history and everything that brought them to be that person today will have a unique outlook and you will too. And that's the beauty of both of you. And it doesn't take away from any of your inherent value. That's beautiful, Nicole. Thank you. I think yes. Every person that comes on that sh- this show, that's what I hope to show, right? Like, mm. this is you. This is who you are in this space. This is your inherent value of the experiences that you have had that have shaped you to be a leader here mm. today and do the work that you're doing. And I'm so thankful for you to come on here and share your truth and your vulnerability. Oh, thank you, Nicole. Yeah. This is really fun. <laughs> That's really yes. fun. It brought me so much joy to talk about this liberation practice, but it's also grounded in intersectionality and our material reality so that it's not too like ethereal and abstract. So thank you for creating and holding this space. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Thank you. Do you want to plug anywhere too for people like your, yeah, if you want to say where can people follow you, I'll have it all below, but you know. Yeah. So um, the website is comebacktocare.com. Join the newsletter. That's the most fun. I have to play the capitalist game and have an Instagram account. So I'm still coming around to it, but most of the content is in the weekly newsletter. So join me there. And the Project Care and Connect is a great place to start being in community together. Definitely. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It was so lovely to have you. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, then subscribe for new episodes released every Wednesday and follow us on Instagram at Modern Anarchy Podcast, where we open up a dialogue about all of these topics. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. And a special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Yuri Smith, for the intro and outro song to this show. 